September the 10th, 2017, lecture discussion number 295 on the Book of Romans. Before I start, you can see that I have a competitor, for those of you in the vast Internet audience, brought to me by Kelly and Chuck. They're visiting from someplace called the East Coast, of which we're not familiar, and they brought me, they brought gifts. There's only two. So theologically, that would be unsound. I thought there was supposed to be three gifts, wasn't there? Uh, of course, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, we're just thrilled to have visitors who bring Worcestershire sauce. So we're doubling our advertising revenue as I speak. Okay, here we are. We took a couple of weeks off, and if anyone could remember, and I know you can't after this two-week hiatus, we're currently searching through uh, Judges 13 through 16. That's my granddaughter, right? Okay, and she's exempt. We're currently searching through Judges 13 through 16 for information that is applicable to Genesis 2, 3, and 4. And essentially what this is, as you know, is the typological facets of the person of Samson, an actual, literal person who existed and did what was recorded. Now, he did many things, but these are the things that God put out, or pulled out and put in a specific order so that we could learn something about him, not Samson, about God. And, and, uh, and Samson, of course, is uh, relatively famous for his hair and for killing Philistines in obscure ways, but he should be more so known for his riddle, which is also the honey, the honey bee honey, I'm sorry, the bee honey, as opposed to date honey or fig honey. And the bee honey that was formed in the carcass of a young roaring lion that Samson tore to pieces and killed. And he comes out of that experience with this riddle that is extraordinary. And the meanings of the bee honey that was contaminated by the contact with death is where we're going to be investigating today, at least a little bit here before we get going. And therefore, the impact all of that has on Samson's Nazarite status, which is number six. So, trying to catch you all up. That is where you learn about Nazarites, or Nazareth. Why Jesus calls himself Jesus of Nazareth is because of number six, and because of Judges 13 through 16. So, also in, 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 in all of this is the hair of Samson, why it was that the shaving of his head results ultimately in his blindness, and why the Philistines put more value on the blindness of Samson than the hair of Samson. In other words, as soon as he lost his ability to defend himself physically, they, they removed his eyes. Very common practice militarily in that region for centuries. That is why when Christ comes and finds a blind man, you might be wise to assume that is a man who had his eyes removed completely. When he spits in the dust and he makes something out of the dirt, he is making an eye and he is installing it into the head or the socket of a man that has no eyes in all likelihood. That's why it's so extraordinary. That person, by the way, is very similar to Samson. And they are they're in a relationship. And immediately you should investigate the blindness of Israel as to um, and compare it to Samson 
and compare also to Samson's hair being removed. You'll find there's a great deal of information there that's quite valuable. That's where we're going to go, but that is about where we left off. And this, of course, add, add more to that. There's gates that he removed. There's foxes or jackals that he tied flames to. There's a young lad that delivers him to where he wishes to kill all the Philistines at some point. There's ashes of the red heifer uh, that we have to deal with. And there's the feast day of first fruits because of the date honey in the land of milk and date honey as opposed to the land of milk and bee honey. So all of that is where we are. So you're caught up. Before we get going in that, which we will, I thought it advised to note the events that are occurring as we move quickly towards the feast days that are coming this month. Um, the, they start this month. Trumpets, atonements, and tabernacles. I've gotten, oh my goodness, literally 50 calls in the two weeks that we've been gone. And it's all about this. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll concede and relent and talk about it for a second. We know that Passover has been fulfilled. Passover is Christ's crucifixion. We know unleavened bread has been fulfilled. That is the three days, three nights, the sign of Jonah and Christ's entombment. We know that first fruits has been fulfilled. That's the spring festival. That is the resurrection of Christ. We know that Shavuot, our weeks, has been fulfilled. That is the ascension of Christ. We, therefore, have three of the seven feast days that have not been fulfilled. That would be trumpet, atonement, and tabernacles. So those three are awaiting fulfillment. They are the fall festivals. So if you look at the spring festivals as the first advent of Christ, then the fall festivals will come and be fulfilled in and about the second advent of Christ, or the second, or the return of Christ, or the second coming of Christ. So I'm getting question after question about is this the Jubilee year, the final Jubilee year, the 120th Jubilee year, which would be Genesis 6-3. And if it is, are, does trumpets now going to correspond to the vanishing or the catching up of the bride, the taking of the bride? Is that what trumpets is going to be? Will he do it on a feast day? Has he done it on four feast days so far? He has. Will he follow the same pattern? He wrote the pattern. The likelihood that the vanishing or the capturing or the collecting of the bride uh, or the church, if you wish, is going to happen on uh, feast day is, I think, not within any controversy. So will it happen on trumpets? I would say to you that that is the most likely. What would come after the, the capturing of the bride or the taking of the bride? Well, very likely atonements, which would correspond to the tribulational periods. By there's, when I said periods, because the tribulation period is divided. And there's also an aftermath, and there is a precursor, if you will. Ezekiel 38, I think, is, is the precursor to the uh, tribulation. So that would be the feast day of atonement, and then tabernacles would be the messianic realm or the messianic kingdom. And that question has been coming to me every single day. And I, I'm making the same mistake that I've made before, as you can tell by our visitors. I answered the phone. She gave me very good advice that I perhaps should stop doing that. Anyway, things be happening. You know that. For example, North Korea has fired 13 missiles this year. 
they have notified the world that they intend to fire more missiles. And every time they fire a missile, people learn things. People against them learn things, and people on their side, and they learn things. And there's a reason they're doing what they're doing, and it is a military reason. The analysts inside the U.S. intelligence agencies are expecting a missile to be fired with a war trajectory. What do I mean by that? Right now, they're not firing war trajectories. That's why they're not shooting them down. They're doing this, pretty much. They're just going like that. Pretty soon, they're going to do this. And it's going to be a high-altitude war trajectory. In other words, they want to fire one that, that uh, demonstrates the capacity to reach the United States. An intercontinental ballistic missile. That's, they have to test a war trajectory. When that happens, the United States has no choice but to shoot it down. We'll see what happens when that occurs. Now, it's also being assumed that the North Korean government, or the military, I guess more specifically, has detonated a hydrogen bomb. That's a thermonuclear bomb. That's a fission, then fusion bomb, as opposed to an atomic bomb, which is strictly a fission bomb. Fission, for those of you who are interested in this, which would be nobody but me, a fission is the splitting of the nucleus of atoms. When neutrons are neutral particles in the core of the atom, in the central area of the, uh, the atom, and are divided, in other words, are split, they will hit the nucleus or the nuclei of adjacent atoms, which causes those atoms to split. So I can start a chain reaction. I can begin splitting Atoms and those atoms will that the nuclei, the nucleus of those atoms will split other nuclei, other nucleuses. That's not a word. It's like what hypotenuses, hippopotamuses, musi. One of those. None of those are true. But if I, if you begin to split the nucleus of an atom into pieces, it will cause adjacent atoms and that nuclei to split. That will cause other. There's an exponential chain reaction and you end up with a 15 to 20 kiloton explosion. That's a big thing. That is Hiroshima. That is Nagasaki. So, The ignition explosion of a hydrogen bomb is not like that at all. Well, somewhat. But what it does is it compresses plutonium-239, and that also results in fission. That also results in the splitting of nucleuses, nuclei, sorry, uh, neutron splitting. But the plutonium is inside of a hydrogen gas chamber, so when it begins this fission process, it, that fission process creates tremendous amounts of heat, and that, that heat now fuses fusion. See, I have fission and fusion. That, that, uh, that fusion begins to fuse together the hydrogen atom, and that fusing releases more neutrons now. And I have a whole much more neutrons to split and I have more neutrons to cause a catastrophic explosive reaction. So the plutonium-239 gets more information, if you will, think of it that way, more fission 
And that continues, if you wish, the, the, the turbocharging is what everybody always says about it. But in any event, just to shorten all of this, that's 10,000 kilotons of TNT. 10,000. So 10,000 versus 20. What we dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima were 20. So this is an incredibly powerful weapon. If North Korea has a thermonuclear device, the questions become, can they successfully deliver it and can they ignite it? Because it has an ignition explosion. And obviously it has to be ignited on target. That requires significant technology, communicative technology. It's obvious that they have mastered a proximity ignition. In other words, they have ignited one underground in their testing systems that they have. They've ignited one. I think that is now, again, without dispute. Ultimately, this becomes an issue of North Korea's guidance technologies, capabilities. Can they launch into the high atmosphere a thermonuclear-equipped missile that survives reentry and then detonates at its intended target? Because that's what you have to do. It's the old, yeah, they, don't, they have to be reasonably close. It's horse, horseshoes, hand grenades, and thermonuclear devices, right? That's how it works. And obviously, I have no expertise in nuclear physics. I'm familiar with the, the dynamics of it, and that's about it, and the vocabulary. And, or the mechanics of rocket propulsion. I've always been fascinated by rocketry and uh, trajectories and firing things but I am not an expert by any means, and the people in Australia will remind me that that's the case. They're, they're very well aware of my scientific limitations, as they should be. But having said that, I'm going to propose that North Korea is nowhere near the level necessary to be accurate. They are not going to be accurate. They cannot hit Alaska successfully. They won't try because if they go off course, they hit Russia. Not a good plan. Or Canada and nobody's there. <laughs> and Alaska, of course, has missile systems that can hit a bullet with a bullet, right? And we're going to get, we have more than we know. They would not tell us how many they know. Therefore, the threat is not a hydrogen bomb that explodes on a U.S. city. That they do not have the capability of. North Korea is an atheistic society. They're monistic. I was talking to the, uh, about this very thing to the visitors from South Carolina. They're atheistic, monistic. They believe that physical death ends them. It extinguishes their thing that they call existence or life. Life, as, a, as an atheist defines it, is a fleeting temporal state awaiting to be revealed as such. And so atheists, which is North Korea, as opposed to, for example, Iran, which is a theological state. I know we'll disagree with their theology, but they are, they are not atheists. They have a different perspective. For an atheist, generally speaking, they are not desiring retaliatory annihilation. The U.S. would completely and absolutely destroy every grain of sand in North Korea if they were to launch a thermonuclear device towards the continental United States. And they would be destroyed 
before the bomb detonated. Why would they be destroyed before the bomb detonated? Because they would, the United States would want to eliminate the possibility of a communication capability between the launch site, the satellite, and the detonation site. So if they can destroy that, that, what did you drop, young lady? It wasn't the baby. Water. Okay, that's good. Every mother in the room turned around to make sure you're doing okay. Chance for. As you can tell, this is a highly structured lecture here, as it is always. Atheists rarely martyrs. They place great value on what they consider their existence. That means. Uh, that uh, they're going to do something other than launch a hydrogen bomb because that's not going to work. They want to survive this attack. They do not want every single piece of dirt in North Korea to be radioactive for 10,000 years. So, what's their plan? Well, that you can tell what their plan is. They have an allegiance now with the, between the Republic of North Korea and Iran. And that's quite troubling because the Iranian nuclear science and the North Korean nuclear science are now collaborating. That's been going on for quite some time. Because you see, a hydrogen bomb utilized as an electromagnetic pulse weapon is what is dangerous to the United States. It does not require precision. It does not need precise guidance systems. Its re-entry capability is not negated. Survivability is not an urgency. All that's required is high-altitude detonation over a vast area. So if they were able to launch a high-altitude electromagnetic thermonuclear device into the atmosphere over the United States, the western United States, for example, the electrical grid would be catastrophically damaged for years. We've talked about this now for a long, long time. It's in the news today and yesterday. North Korea is saying that they have this capability. The Iranians are the rocketeers of this operation, along with the Russians and the Chinese. So all of this is tied together. An electrical grid that is hit by an EMP would send the affected area into dark chaos. It would be extraordinarily dangerous. It would be years before it was repaired and millions of people would suffer greatly. They estimate the death rate would be much, much higher than the explosion of the bomb itself. It's, it's ten times. All of this is in the news. Now, of course, a coronal mass ejection could also do this, a solar flare or solar expulsions. As a coincidence, what's happening with the sun right now? There is a dramatic increase in solar activity. I'm just saying that. Anyway, all of that, North Korea, this is the warm and fuzzy cheer you up portion of the lecture. North Korea, Iran, the United States, uh, so I've got North Korea and Iran, and then I've got the United States and the South Koreans and Israel. They're all heightened and they're all moving preeminent, uh, they're going to preempt this. 
Syria is collaborating with Hezbollah. Bill mentioned that the, the Israelis bombed a chemical weapons facility and they were able to get through the Russian uh, navigation systems, in other words, the Russian anti-aircraft uh, systems. And they did it uh, without warning. They destroyed that chemical weapons cache because the Syrians were going to give that those chemical weapons to Hezbollah. So we have Russia and, and the Ukraine. The Russian is, is the Ukraine is in fear that the Russians are about to invade them. We have earthquakes in Mexico. We have volcanic activity in the middle of the United States. We have hurricanes in Texas and Florida. We have fires in California. We have Montana uh, fires. We have mountains of crippling debt. The currencies of the world are are very very fragile right now. And this is what we call holy mackerel, honey child. This is getting to be very, very difficult. So many things are happening so fast, it's hard to keep track of them. And you see this rush to the edge, if you will, to the cliffside. Five pages to get to that joke. Thank you for laughing. Some of you groaned, but that's okay. I'll take it. It's still a sound. I count it. So that is why I get all of these questions about September 2017, which again, if they're right, and they should be right, they should be able to measure from uh, the... Uh, the, from 1917, 1867, 1967, 1948 or 49, 1972, they should be And say, here, listen, I just told the first 49 people this this week this. And so the question is always, is this the year that we see the confederacy that has long been prophesied in Ezekiel 38? Is this the year that that occurs? When does Christ come for his bride? When does Christ come then for his Israel? And uh, so they ask me that. And I say, well, we should read the Simeon prophecy. And I'll put it on the board. A little bit, for the sake of the vast internet audience, as they like that, that we aim to please, especially when they come from faraway lands bringing Worcestershire sauce. We have the Simeon prophecy. You've heard me do this uh, for years. I've done it many times. I begin it most of the time with Simeon. Himself, for whom ultimately is named, but that's not why I name it the Simeon Prophecy, and that is Genesis 29.33. Simeon is the one, he is the second born of the twelve, right? He is the murderer of Shechem. He is the one that is held by Joseph in Genesis 42.24. So, uh, Simeon, the word itself means hearing, of all the brothers that Joseph could bind, he could have bound both Levi and Simeon. They were the two murderers of Shechem, but and that was a 
a, uh, as you might remember, that was a circumcision issue, and circumcision is a portrait of Christ crucified. All of that to say, starts with Simeon. He is the one that is captured by Joseph and bound and imprisoned. So, the hearing is gone now, the ability to hear. So, who is it that Simeon is representing here? And then I have the Simeon of Luke uh, 2.25 Let me get this correct so I don't give you more than you need. Through 35, that is the prophet Simeon. The prophet Simeon was told that he would not pass away until he saw the Messiah. And he holds up God. He holds up God in the, in, 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 the infant Christ. He holds up God. And then he says, okay, I can die now. <coughs> On top of that, of course, I have Simeon the Cyrenian. Who carries the cross beam? Serenian. And then, of course, we have Simeon. Peter, you would say Simon Peter, but if you do that, you'll have a tendency to not see the four Simeons. I have the Simeonites as well. I won't put them on the board making five. But Simeon Peter, the most important portion of that is uh, John 21. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Finally, he says, you are omniscient God. You know all things. Now, Christ, once you understand that Christ is, in fact, creator, omniscient God, the creator of all things, he's outside of time, he's infinite. Once you say that to him, that's what Simon Peter finally says. Simeon Peter finally says in John 21, you are infinite God. Okay, now you're eligible to follow me. So, the question becomes, is Simeon the prophet? Where is he? Right here. Is he 70 or is he 80? How old is he? Remember, Simon Peter reaches out for Christ and says, Save me. Christ goes and pulls him out of the dark water, right? Remember? This is the hearing that is bound. Someone who can't hear has to be saved, cries out to Christ. Someone who can't hear has to be saved and denies Christ three times. Someone who can't hear has to be saved, uh, denies Christ three times and doesn't know he's infinite God, has to be taught that he's infinite God, is portrayed here, and we have to know how old he is. So obviously the Simeons are all portraying Israel, the nation of Israel. That's their primary Typological positioning. So is Simeon 70 or 80, Psalm 90, verse 10. Because Psalm 90, verse 10 tells us that he could be 70 or 80. So which is he? You see, if Simeon the prophet is 70, then we calculate one way. And everybody wants to calculate right now. But we have to know where to calculate from. But it is a math problem. You don't know where it begins. And you don't know how long it is. But you have all of this information in there to find. If Simeon's 70, we begin calculating and we have one set of calculations. But if he's 80, then we have another set of calculations. And now we have uh, doubt, I guess. The Simeons, again, are Israel. 
Israel uh, bound by Joseph. They, they were unable to know who Joseph was in truth. He doesn't expose who he is to them. The first time they meet him, he speaks to them in a language they don't understand. Christ, when he comes to Israel, is rejected as God, and he speaks to them in parables. The second time he reveals who they are and he saves them. The second time Joseph tells them that he is Joseph. Joseph, Yeshua, Yeshua, it is the same root, right? It's the same name. Joseph weeps over them and comforts them. But in the first time, he imprisons them so they cannot hear him. So all of that there. And we're going to go ahead and knock it out today just to get it off the table. Let's read. And I'm not going to do it with any degree of complexity. I just want you to know it's here. So Luke 2.25. Here we go. This is how it starts. And behold. As I'm getting older, it's harder and harder to demonstrate just how important that word is. Behold. I now know everything that comes after this is going to be unbelievable information. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Behold, that's incredible. I got a man in Jerusalem whose name is Simeon. That's big news. Something amazing is now going to come out of it. And this man was just and devout. Which means that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This ties him to Jephthah, Jephthah's daughter. By the way, don't have time for that. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Consolation of Israel is a messianic term. He was waiting for the comforter of Israel. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Is he 70 or 80 when he dies? So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents, Joseph and Mary, brought in the Christ Jesus, brought in infinite God to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Now I can die. I have seen you. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, most Bibles, they don't have the words, they have your capitalized. They do not have salvation capitalized. Yeshua, right? Which means salvation. I have not seen your salvation. That is a Proverbs 30, verse 4 reference. Which you have prepared before the faces of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. He makes the point that the Gentiles are going to be saved. That is the statement of Simeon. At this point, no one thought the Gentiles would be saved in Israel, and no one in Israel wanted the Gentiles to be saved for that matter. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, 
Behold, again, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So, again, let me repeat. How old is Israel when they see the Messiah? Seventy or eighty. You can do your own math. Feel free to use your phones. You don't have to think anymore in our society or in our school system. What's that? Can you go back to 1917? Is that what you're asking me? 67 when they took Jerusalem? Yeah, so you have to decide. Remember the guy wrote the great book, 87 Reasons I Was Wrong in 1987. That's not his book title. That's uh, my title for his book. And millions of people bought his book because he couldn't add, subtract, multiply, divide, and figure mathematically. I submit. How do I know that? Because his answer clearly was wrong. Ha, ha, for those of you who bought the book. And the, and the subsequent book, 88 Reasons Why You Were Dumb Enough to Buy My Book in 87. That's not the real title either, but you make the point, right? Okay. That's all I can, I can do with that. You're on your own now. We're going to return to Samson and his riddle and his plowing heifer. So, so far we haven't even begun the lecture. But we did talk about thermonuclear devices... Fusion and fission, hydrogen gas chambers, and plutonium-239, so this makes it a perfect lecture today. Let me see, where, where will I want to be now? I already did that page. Sometimes I don't read my own stuff. Okay. Samson, his riddle, the plowing heifer, and all of this is very difficult to grasp, but we're going to attempt it anyway. I've already stated many times over the years that Samson is Scripture at its most mysterious. Uh, I think that that is the case. Samson just doesn't seem to fit anywhere neatly. People try to beat him into position, and it never happens. He always squirms out. He seems only to be partially a portrait of Christ, which is the case, partially a portrait of Israel, which is the case. He's also a deceiver who places unclean food before others to eat, and he doesn't tell them they're eating it. Back to Genesis 3 we go, right? Eventually, I came to the conclusion, looking at all of it for all these years, that this, what I would call this transitioning of Samson, the fact that you can't fit him in any place and make him stay there. He, he jumps around, and you have to always know when he is no longer what you thought he was and what he has become next, and why there, there's, there's this order of him. Why is he first a Nazarite? A defend, raised up to defend Israel, a slayer of the enemies of Israel. Then he becomes something else. This man marrying a Philistine wife that's setting fire to all kinds of stuff, tying it to tails of jackals or foxes, whichever position you wish to have. Then he becomes this blind man. After he's got his head shaven, he's an, uh, 
cavorting with a prostitute, a Philistine. So why that order, in other words? There's a, there's a reason for the order. Again, God selected out the life of Samson, put it in the exact order it was, and highlighted it, if you will. He, there are many things Samson did. These are the ones he gave us, and they are inspired and therefore point us in a direction. Okay, eventually I came to conclude that the, the transitioning of, of Samson, the changing of Samson, maybe if you wish, is the point of it. Instead of asking, why is this here? Start asking, why is this here? See the difference? That's very profound. Instead of lamenting the difficulty of understanding the typology of Samson, ask instead, why is this the way God did it? This is intentional. Duh, he's omniscient. Why is Samson this way? Why does Samson have all of these divergent attributes? It's clearly intentional, purposeful. God wrote it. So why? And so that's how we take on Samson's riddle, which is, as you know, mysteriously strange, which is the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be mysteriously strange. So ask, why is it mysteriously intended to be mysterious? So here we go. We're going to read Judges 14, 12. Through 20. We've read it before, but we're going to do it again. And you're going to notice that this is very different. Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle that we may hear it. So this is ultimately, I'm sorry, essentially, it can be boiled down to a bet, a wager, right? I have a riddle. You've got seven days. You give me 30 pieces of clothing, 60 pieces of clothing, actually, or 30, 30, of 30 and 30, or I'll give you 30 and 30. Now, as you know, I am once in my life very well equipped to play a game of eight ball and straight pool and nine ball, one pocket. And somebody that can play straight pool Nine ball, one pocket. Eight ball is uh, not somebody that has uh, spent his time judiciously, which was me. I know a bad bet when I see one, is what I'm saying. This looks odd. And they said, pose your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Is that a question? That's a statement. Is that a puzzle? How is it a puzzle? Does it sound like a puzzle to you? Would you, if I said to you, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet, you'd thought I was a really bad songwriter. 
you would not think I was asking you to solve something. But they think, they know that this is a puzzle. Now, for three days, they could not explain the riddle, but it came to pass on the fourth day, your Bible might say seventh, that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? Then Samson's wife wept on him. What should you do now? We have a woman weeping, weeping on a Nazarite. Where else do we have a woman weeping on a Nazarite? So start finding your women's, women's weeping, I can't even do it. Women's weeping on Nazarite verses. Hopefully you've thought of the most obvious one. Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not ex explained it to me. And he said to her, Look, I have not explained it to my father or my mother. Why should I explain it to you? Why should he? he what is this? Why is he hiding? What is, what is he saying? Solve what I am saying, and you have solved something profound. And you won't. I'll get to that in a minute. Now, she had wept on him the seven days while the, the feast lasted, and it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. Why is she pressing him so much? They're going to kill her and her family. That was their solution. They knew going in that they could solve the riddle, right? All they had to do kill the wife. Pretty simple mafia tactic, really. You want to save your wife? We get your stuff. Idiot. That was the plan. All along. Do not think that they fell for this without understanding what they would need to do beforehand. I have a tendency to think this is a reaction. I'm going to say to you it's premeditation. And it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. Then he explained the, then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ascalon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. Isn't that an interesting way for him to solve? What kind of, what do we have here? What kind of people are we dealing with? These are, these are murderous people on both sides. Now, prior to this, Samson, as you know, the context of this, comes upon a young lion. A young lion, roaring young lion, comes out and surprises him. And he kills the lion easily. He tears it to pieces easily, as if it was effortless. It was effortless for him. And honey, honeybees, as you might remember, inexplicably swarm into the corpse of the lion and produce bee honey. Because this is, this is significant scientific information. Honeybees produce bee honey. 
as opposed to date honey and fig honey. Milk and honey is not bee honey. It's not even cow's milk. Milk and honey is date honey in all likelihood, mathematically, and goat milk. Could be fig honey. Could be white wine. If you were here for that lecture a couple weeks ago, you know all of that. Now, Samson, why am I repeating it? Because none of you were awake and we have visitors. So that's why. Now, Samson is on his way into, into Philistine territory. The Philistines are in control of Israel at this time, but he's going into their stronghold and he's going to take for himself a Philistine wife. That is a forbidden act. You're not allowed, if you're a Nazarite or an Israelite for that matter, to take a, a Philistine wife. Exodus 34:16, Deuteronomy 7:3. Samson doesn't care. Obviously, he doesn't care. Ask why not? Why doesn't he care? He's a Nazarite. He's an Israelite. He knows Exodus 34:16. He knows Deuteronomy 7:3. He's still going down to take a Philistine wife. Why is he doing it? Doesn't care, obviously. Ask why not. Notice that Samson is ceremonially unclean because he kills the lion. He touches it. He has to go through a cleansing provision, but he doesn't. Oh, and just as an aside, only uh, uh, officiating priests are, ex- are accepted from touching dead animals. They can touch clean dead animals in a sacrificial uh, context. But the lion that Samson killed is an unclean animal, and it's dead. So he's got contact with dead, and he has contact with an unclean animal, and yet it doesn't affect him. He's unconcerned about that. And he's going to participate in a wedding celebration now, and such, and he's going to drink wine. That's also forbidden by the law of the Nazarite, number six. And Samson, again, notice the trend, doesn't care. Why not? And the words literally in the text don't mean he, uh, uh, wedding feast. It says it ri- literally means drinking party. So Samson is, is throwing a drinking party for the Philistines. There's 30 of them. Those 30 were provided by the father of his Philistine bride. So they don't like Samson and he don't like them. But they're having a drinking party. That is what has occurred, and now we have this mysterious thing that he says. This word translated riddle, it's not really accurate in most, I don't think it should be there. It has been rendered elsewhere in the Bible, dark saying. I think that's more correct. Dark saying, not meaning evil, means very, very difficult to understand. So he gave them something that is, frankly, Uh, it's, It's a secret of great complexity. He gave them a secret that the implication is that this secret is not solvable. It's unknowable. No one can understand this. And Samson is presenting this secret to them. So he believes he's going to get a lot of clothing. Or has he anticipated how they'll respond? The obvious question is, why is he doing it? Does he want 30 linen undergarments? Because that's what it is. I know that every teenage boy should have at least 365 pairs of socks and underwear. I got that. Samson wants 30 linen 
undergarments, 30 sets of festive embroidered robes. Is that what he wants? I don't think so. He wants a new wardrobe. Men's warehouse. Is that his plan? Has he figured out what the Philistines are going to do? How smart is Samson? He's going to give them a riddle he knows is unknowable. How are they going to respond? Has he anticipated their response? Have they anticipated his response to their response? That's for next week. Why 30? This is the same as why 30 companions. Why does he want 30 companions to forfeit their best garments? That's what he's asking them to do. Go get your best garments and give them to me. What's he doing? What's that mean to them? And why is there 30 of them? What is the purpose meaning of the 30? What is the purpose meaning of the coverings? I've got, I've got people whose coverings are going to be taken from them. Where do we go now? Where is the first place in the Bible that coverings are taken from somebody? Genesis 3.21. Remember, I told you that Larkin would get everything back to Genesis 3. You just said he was right. All you have to do is look for it. It seems to be universal. Just as an aside, Christ began his public ministry at what age? Luke 3.23? 30. Genesis 41.46, Joseph, how old was he? When he assumed? 30. David begins his reign, 2 Samuel 5, 4, at? Go ahead, yes. 30. Thank you for participating. I have all those 30s. I got 30 companions. And as you might expect, there are many opinions on these hard sayings of Samson, this very unknowable saying. And as we always should, we need to compare. I gotta go fast now. We need to compare the New Testament compliments because wherever I have an Old Testament problem, I have a New Testament solution. That's what I'm trying to give you as I'm doing this. But we should find the New Testament uh, solution. We need to compare the New Testament compliment to Judges 14, 14 and 14, 18. So where do you think the New Testament congruity is? What should I do? I'm going to submit to you because uh, I know you're tired of all the questions, which of course is the point. Once I get you exhausted, then I put you to sleep. My primary role in society. I think that the answer to that question is John 6, 53 through 66. And if I am correct, duh, then the mystery of Samson is to be compared to the mystery of communion, which encompasses the crucifixion of Christ. So let me read it really fast. John 6:53 is where I'm going to start. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. 
He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your father ate, fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Capernaum. Ha! Ah, can't even say it. Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, here it comes, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? It's rhetorical. What's that mean? You can't know what he meant. So I have the New Testament compliment. Christ comes to to bring redemption, to salvation, to those who are imprisoned, who are slaves, who are dying in hopelessness. And he gives this saying, that is hard to understand, if not unknowable. Only It is only knowable because Christ makes it knowable. Holy Spirit does. Samson is a dim portrait of that when he tears apart the gates of the city, right? And carries them up a hill. They say, uh, traditionally, 37 years, he, he marches up with these incredibly heavy gates. He throws them into a valley, and they are irretrievable. The typological aspect is so clear. And all of that to say the mystery of Samson's hard saying compares to the hard saying of Christ and ultimately compares to the sacrifice or the crucifixion of Christ, the sacrificial substitutionary death of God himself in the flesh. That is the mystery of godliness. Who can understand that? How did God, infinite God, add humanity? Hypostatic union, right? Now, that's our goal here. Finding Christ in the middle of the riddle of Samson. And we can now start that process. How am I doing? Ooh, bad. I should make a list. I won't. But I'll just read it to you. Out of the eater, that would be A, came something to eat, B. Also translated, came forth meat. We'll argue that in the weeks to come. D, and out of the strong came something sweet. So we got a lot to determine. First question, where's Christ? Is he the strong? Is he the sweet? Is he both? Second question, who's the eater? The devourer. Is that Christ? Christ calls himself the lion who devours his enemies. The devourer is also Satan. Okay, big problems now. All of you who pick Satan, move over, move away from the people who pick Christ. Who is the strong? Is Satan called the strong man? Christ is the one that defeats the strong man. Takes his house, right? What is there to eat? What is that which is sweet? It should come as no surprise that most commentary on this portion of the riddle is limited to the young lion and the honeybees. And that it's assumed that the roaring young lion is the eater and the honey is that which is sweet. I think that's too simplistic. The strong is likewise the roaring young lion, and that's reflected in the Philistine's answer. Remember that? And Samson, uh, therefore is prefiguring Christ, and that is who Christ is in all of this. But again, I think that is rudimentary, and I think it is far more than this. No surprise. How is that what I just said to you unknowable? 
It's not unknowable. Did Samson attack them because they figured it out? I don't think he did. Thank you for whispering no. They didn't figure it out. They gave an answer. They didn't understand it. They didn't have any idea what he was talking about. So why did he go kill 30 people, steal garments, and give it to them? Why did he do that? Save his wife. So, they didn't know it. Remember what he said. See, the Philistines didn't answer. They asked two more questions. What's stronger than a lion? What is sweeter than bee honey? So let me change it. What is sweeter than insect regurgitated plant nectar? Line up. We'll be in the buffet. Samson concedes that these two questions will allow them to prevail. But he never really says that they have answered it. And this unresolving nature of the wager, that's the problem that for many scholars, I, I say, listen, I don't believe it's answered. I naturally ask, what else is in Scripture that compares to this? What in the New Testament cannot be explained, yet is explained, because a weeping woman faced with being burned to death, her and her entire family burned to death by the Philistines, and they pleads with Salmon, Samson and is spared. Where is that? Remember, he said, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my mystery. So you would have had no information at all. But again, it's unknowable. We can readily determine that the heifer is his bride and plowing is not what people think. Plowing is what? Threatening to burn her and her family. And Samson responds by killing exactly how many men? Thirty. Who, who are these guys? And he takes their garments. Who are they? And then he burns their fields. So again, where and who strips garments from evil men who are threatening the wife or the bride of Christ and then burns them? Where is that in the New Testament? Next week, which we will be here. We're here for 16 or 17 consecutive Sundays. Isn't that a record for Alaska? Is this where we make them rise and be dismissed?